and welcome to our second podcast of 2023. Each episode of Conversations aims to bring you lively discussion with a range of investment experts and is focused on concepts and outcomes of interest to you and your clients. Our second series focuses on silver linings, the advantage that arises from a challenging situation. We've now had two rate rises in 2023 and a few issues in US banks have tested investors' fortitude in the last couple of weeks. Today, I'm joined by GSFM CEO, Damien McIntyre, who's speaking with Peter Zeckley, Managing Partner of Tanara Credit Partners, a specialist private credit firm and manager of our newest fund, the TCP Private Debt Income Fund. Before I hand over, I need to read this important notice. The information contained in this podcast is general and does not consider your objectives, financial situations or needs. The information and views contained in this update reflect, as of the date of recording, the current opinions of the participants and are subject to change without notice. Before making an investment decision in relation to a fund, investors should consider the appropriateness of this information, having regard to their own objectives, financial situation and needs, and read and consider both the product disclosure statement and the additional information. GSFM Responsible Entity Services has produced a target market determination in relation to all of the GSFM funds. The TMD sets out the class of persons who comprise the target market for the various funds, which can be downloaded from our website. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, the 15th of March, 2023. I feel like I need to say, beware the Ides of March. Damon and Peter, the floor is yours. Thank you, Tracy, and welcome, and welcome to GSFM's podcast series. The whole point of these, these conversations is to try and give our clients, and indeed your clients, insight into what's going on within the investment markets, and really to delve deeply into the decisions that our portfolio managers make. Hopefully, these insights will be of great value to you when you're discussing the world and portfolios with your clients. I'm joined today by Peter Zeckley. Peter's the Senior Portfolio Manager in the Tanara Private Credit Fund, a recently added fund to the GSFM stable. In terms of why did we add Tanara and private credit to our portfolio? Firstly, looking at it from a, a market perspective, we like to have access to big asset classes. And what's become apparent in recent years is that there is an enormous opportunity within the loans market for private credit funds to basically take the position that the banks once had. Banks once upon a time very happily and, and often lent to businesses, but in recent years they've backed away from corporate lending in favour of first mortgage lending. And this has created a huge void in the loans market and thus an opportunity for private credit managers and indeed investors to take advantage of this void. So we see this as a really big asset class and we think this theme will run for a very long period of time. Then it gets down to manager selection. And Tanara is an organization that's known to GSFM on many levels. Firstly, our executive chairman, Andrew McKinnon, worked with the senior people and the founders at Tanara for many years when he was at Credit Suisse. When Andrew was at Credit Suisse, he worked with John Wiley and Michael Tierney. John is the founder of Tanara and Michael is pretty much the founder of the credit business. 
And then we also delved into other circles in the market by virtue of our colleagues at Grant Samuel. And it's probably fair to say that our colleagues at Grant Samuel have observed Tanara over recent years as a lender in the marketplace. And the advice that Grant Samuel gave us about Tanara was that they were highly competent lenders. So this gave us a lot of confidence. A, we knew the people and B, we had a direct market indication as to the competence of the lending team, which gave us the confidence to move forward to this partnership. So that's why we added Tanara to our roster. We're in the market now raising assets in the fund. We've been working with the team pretty much since November of last year. I think we've covered a lot of ground in a relatively short period of time. So rather than me waffle on, what I might do is start firing questions at Peter. So just in a general context, Peter, can you describe just what is private credit? Yes, thanks, Damien, and thanks for hosting podcasts. Private credit or private debt, and, and those two terms are often used interchangeably. It really covers the whole range of non-listed debt instruments, and it can include corporate loans, property loans, asset-backed financing, for example, equipment financing, um, so really any non-listed debt product. It does cover a wide range of risk profiles from the, the largest investment-grade blue-chip corporates all the way to small startup venture capital type of businesses. The interesting thing is the market develops is really, and, and you hit on this point, is the ability to choose which segment of the private credit market you want to invest in. So manager selection obviously is very important, but you can choose property, private credit, corporate private credit, like asset-backed lending, or a combination of the above. So when we look at Tenar Credit Partners, our real focus has been on corporate lending, especially in that performing middle market space. But there really is options for clients as you look at that private credit universe and you can determine which is the good fit for your targets. In an inflationary environment, private credit presents an attractive proposition relative to other asset classes or other fixed income asset classes. Can you explain why that's the case? Sure. And I think over the last year and a half, inflation obviously has been in the headlines. Um, overnight last night, we saw the, the US print um, year on year north of 6% still. And similarly, in, in Australia, we continue to operate in a, in a high inflationary environment. The, the key when we look at private credit and specifically at the corporate loan space where we operate are the return. It's important to understand the composition of, of the return of our product. So it's really composed of cash income versus capital appreciation. That that cash income is paid by a borrower on a periodic basis. The interest rate includes two components, a base rate, which in Australian dollars is the bank bill rate plus a margin. The bank bills rate is set at the beginning of an interest period by the borrower it can be one, three or six month periods. So it's a short term interest rate at the end of that period. For example, if a borrower chooses to have a one rate interest rate setting, the rate is then reset again at the end of the first month. So to be clear, it's the one month interest rate plus a margin in that example. And if we're in a situation where the RBA increases rates during that month, when the rate is reset, typically that is passed through to the borrowing cost. So the bank bills rate will increase during that period. So for that next interest rate setting, the borrower will pay that higher rate plus the margin. So what this means for investors during a inflationary period is rates go up, the base rate 
rate the borrower pays increases periodically and within the longest period being six months. So that increased rate is passed through to the borrower through an increase in the interest rates. If we look at our portfolio today, for example, the average reset period is two months. So that means on average, the borrowers in our portfolio have chosen an average of a, a two-month rate setting so that every two months, that base rate in our portfolio is reset based on that prevailing interest rate. So if interest rates go up by 1%, the margin or interest rate paid to us similarly goes up by a percent. So it really provides a natural hedge for our investors as we're constantly receiving a higher interest rate as rates move up. The other key component for investing in, in a floating rate private credit product during um, an inflationary period is really what that inflation leads to. So as we've seen rates go up, we can feel the economic slowdown filtering through in terms of higher costs for the consumer and businesses. So what's, what that means is that as we see a, a, a harder operating environment for corporates in, in the market, we see more of a movement of cash into the private credit products, given that it's a fairly well-protected part of the capital structure. And what I mean by that is the loans that we're lending to, they sit in the capital structure above equity. So for example, if there's a company worth $100, if there's $50 of equity and $50 in our loan, we have to see a deterioration of that $50 of equity value before we see any deterioration in, in our loan value. So again, in, in summary, we do see a passing through of rates as rates go up. We pass that through to our investor by the increase in the interest that we receive. Plus, we're in a safer part of the capital structure. So as operating conditions become more difficult for corporates, we're well protected against those and have a large equity cushion below us where we would consider having any issues in the portfolio. One issue which uh, raised its ugly head late last week was the issue of managing duration risk and interest rate hedges, and in particular that significantly and negatively impacted Silicon Valley Bank. So is that an issue for you when you manage your fund, as in your interest rate duration risk, and how do you manage it? Sure. The short answer is we know we don't have that duration risk. So in a, in a fixed income portfolio, when a bond is issued, say it's a five-year bond, you're setting that a fixed interest cost, say 5%, for example, today, which will stay in place through that five-year life of the bond. If we see rates overall go up to 6 or 7%, that fixed income instrument or that bond will see a deterioration in its value, given that for that same risk, you could go out today as an investor and invest in that same risk at that prevailing six or 7%. Given that the loans that we're investing in are floating rate, we again periodically reset the interest rate for each of our investments so that as a prevailing interest rate environment increases, we receive a higher interest payment from our borrowers and which we pass on through to investors. So it really is a product of the time in terms of protecting, being protected against any duration risk. In the traditional sense of banks borrowing short and lending long, that in no way is the same case here. You're simply taking investors' capital, lending the money, and then giving them the interest rate return on those loans. That's correct. Great. As you said a minute ago, rising rates is actually positive for the ambitions of this fund on the one hand. So every time interest rates move up, given you're resetting rates on a, on every two months with your borrowers, you're going to capture this pretty quickly. How are you finding your, or how do you make sure that your borrowers have the capacity to pay the interest given in the last 10 months, we've seen 10 consecutive interest rate rises. So that meant 
and you know means just in rough terms that your clients have had to have their rates of adjusted up say five times so so how do you make sure they've got the capacity to pay an increasing interest bill yeah, that's one of, I think, unique aspects about private credit and the market we're playing in. It's very much a heavy credit, a bottom-up credit type product. Given that we're a private instrument, we have access to all the borrowers' financials. Typically, we have diligence reports on the, the legal accounting and, and market side. Plus, we work with the borrowers to develop financial models. So we, we project out their cash flows starting from when we go into an investment out through the life of the loan. Part of that analysis and when we're structuring structuring transactions, we're running sensitivities against the projections to look at if, if rates were to go up one, two, three percent, how does that affect the cash flows? If it's a, a company which has a, a major contract, if they were to lose that contract, for example, how would that affect cash flows? And through this development of, of a base set of financial projections, then running sensitivities against it to understand how performance of the company can be affected, whether it's higher rates or other risks, we then develop the appropriate structure. Looking at the portfolio, for the, the PDS, we've started investing it in February of last year. Portfolio is still performing well. Again, based on when we entered into those um, loans, we had built in appropriate amount of, of leverage against potential rate hikes from the get-go. And I think we look at the rate cycle where we are today, the bills rate is just north of 3.5%. If you look back sort of 25, 30 years through our careers, we, we've seen rates as high as 5 6%. So it's the ability of being aware of where the rate cycle can go, what the risk can be, and really strong structuring a deal that's appropriate for the borrower so you're not getting down um, into a situation where a borrower is struggling to um, service its interest. So when comparing an investment in a credit fund with an investment in a bond fund, in a rising interest rate environment, it's a tough time for the bond investor because of this inverse relationship between yield and price. So every time the interest rate increases, the bond when it's marked to market today is in theory worth less. In this case, it's different because the capital value more or less rem remains stable yet the interest rate is captured every time. Is that correct? That's right, Damien. The other key attraction of the private credit market is just given the effectively stripping out of that duration risk that we don't see the volatility you'll see in a, in a fixed interest instrument. So it's not better or worse, but we are a, a much lower level of volatility, both actually in, in rate hikes and when rates are cut. So for investors benefiting from increase in rates of being passed through, you don't have, you're not suffering on the price cut as rates go up and you don't have the volatility. You know, I think that investors should look at the product is really it's a effectively a lower volatility high cash income product it's sort of a sleep at night product in terms of, of where it sits in the capital structure but it's it's less of a traded instrument so the, the bond market is obviously I'm, i think you're probably heading to the the next point is when rates are cut what happens obviously you can be in a situation in the bond markets where you have a fairly significant appreciation of price so it's it's easier to play more of a traded strategy in the bond markets where we think of private credit more as a longer term, low volatility, high cash income, but more stable type investment. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the thing is that invest, you can never have it both ways, can you? What you're giving up in a falling rate market, you're making in a rising rate market. Regardless though, whether the direction of interest rates, the capital base is stable. It's really just the interest received or the coupon that's going to vary. 
And that's correct. So if we even look back two years before the, the rate cycle started, base rates were near 0%. Again, at that time, given rates were just hovering around zero and not really moving, there was a fair level of stability in both private credit and the bond markets. But even in that situation, private credit would still be paying a premium to the bond markets. And the reason being that private credit is it does have a more illiquid underlying, again, which is important for investors to understand, but we're getting paid for that. So it's, I think, longer term, lower volatility, higher paying for or similar similar rated borrower versus the bond market, but it's slightly less liquid, but we get paid for that. Okay, so just coming to fees for a moment and just discussing loans generally, when a bank issues a loan to a borrower, there are a myriad of fees from the outset. There's an establishment fee, there are line fees, and then of course there's the interest rate, which all enhances the return to the bank. So in the case of private credit, when you extend a loan to a borrower or when you offer a loan to a borrower, how are those fees treated? Who gets to keep those fees? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, Damien. So in terms of the return that investors are getting, it's really two components. So the first is that interest rate, which we receive, again, comprised of the base rate plus the margin. The second component is an establishment fee. So what an establishment fee is, it's a, a fixed percentage in that mid-market space where we play, it's typically in the range of 3%. It's paid upfront against the principal amount of the loan. Some of our peers in the market do keep a portion of that upfront fee as part of their compensation. To be clear for the PDS product, um, all of that upfront fee does go to the, the fund investor. By virtue of the fact that we're participating in the loans market, we, we are lenders. So we get to participate in the broad spectrum of fees that a borrower would ordinarily pay anyway, which is great for enhancing the returns. That's correct. Tell me, we're in a period of time where interest rates have you know, risen very quickly. We're in this high inflationary period where, depending on where you are in the world, will depend on the magnitude of the inflation rate, but it's certainly comfortably the other side of 7% or it's been there in most geographies. How has that impacted the way you lend to companies or your mindset? So how does that play through your mind, this high inflation? environment and also this rising interest rate environment. How does that play in your minds when you're thinking about extending credit to a borrower? Yeah, I think there are really two components to it. First is just really focusing on which borrowers that we're going to lend money to. When we look at the sort of overall borrower world, there's obviously a lot of choices in terms of, again, which which segments are you, are you going to lend to? So are you going to lend to property? You can do some more cyclical sectors like mining, or you can focus more on, on what we call more defensive type businesses, such as education, healthcare, infrastructure services. So again, it's real sort of a choice of, of the manager, but also a choice for investors in terms of looking at where you want to place your money. But for us, I think that we look at the flow through of inflation. Once we've decided the segment or industry sector that we like, we look at the borrower universe and it's really looking at how much debt can that borrower support. So again, when we, when we structure a transaction, we'll look at what's our base financial model? What's the risk of, of interest rates? So can interest rates today sitting at three and a half suddenly go to five? Absolutely. And, and what's the effect going to be on, on our end borrower and how they can serve 
service-side debt. What that naturally means in, in a higher interest rate environment is that we're going to put less debt on a credit. So we're really being more cautious in terms of just the absolute amount of leverage that we're lending to each of our borrowers. The other follow-on through from inflation, obviously with inflation, and, and we all see it sort of on a personal basis every day, is just the cost side of the corporate world as well is also increased, whether it be through wages, whether just their supply chain. But what that's meant is that so have to be more, more sensitive in terms of both industries that we're investing in and specific to borrowers. How is that going to flow through their P&L? And also, how is that going to affect behavior of their clients? So for example, if it's industry which does rely in terms of the consumer market, obviously the consumer is feeling a higher pinch with higher grocery costs and a, and a higher rates reset. So that's going to affect, affect that business. So it's really flows across decisions in terms of which industries we're, we're investing in, amount of leverage we put on a credit, and just looking at how we sensitize and structure deals with each of our borrowers to be cautious and, and certain that in, in an uncertain economic environment that we're, we're not lending into to a segment that we see is holding a lot of potential risk. This really is a case of adjusting your risk to the ebbs and flows of the economy. For example, as you said, in a, in a high inflationary environment, and one thing, unfortunately, that homeowners are discovering now is that perhaps the value of our homes is lower than it was a year ago by virtue of interest rates being much higher. So in your case, you're staying away from property because of that price volatility, and that would affect the underlying security of of the loan and equally given that you know the real estate market is under some stress not huge stress but under some stress buyers aren't necessarily queuing up to take assets off people's hands either. So in the context of the ebbs and flows of the economy and as it applies to real estate, real estate is a no now. Do you see a time when your book will lend to real estate? Yes, yeah, so I think for this product, we do have the ability to do to have some real estate exposure, but really it would be, for example, repositioning of, of an asset. We don't have plans for this fund to look at any development risk in the property sector. Now, interestingly, this product lends into Asia. Can you just describe how the Asian lending market works, the types of companies you're looking at, and how can you be in the position to assess the loans? Have you got the resources on the ground, for example, to make those decisions? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Damien. We've been fortunate to have a team up in Hong Kong, myself and in a recent hire, Peter Han. We've been there for myself 25 years and Peter close to 20. So I think the target markets that we're looking at in Asia, we call them developed Asia. So really jurisdictions where there's a long precedent of legal enforcement and just legal structures. So Hong Kong, Singapore, Korea, Japan, Taiwan. So really jurisdictions where as a lender, there's a clear, transparent and comfortable way for any sort of legal protections if it if that ever came about. In terms of the segments we're looking at, very similar to the market here, looking at defensive areas in terms of healthcare, education, corporate services, and really based on the high growth of the Asian economy. So we've seen roughly a third of the, the global GDP today is sitting in Asia, and it's a very underserved market in terms of, of credit. While the banks have been fairly liquid and active in that sort of higher rated corporate space in the sort of mid-market area where we play, we feel there's a lot of opportunities. So we feel there's, in terms of a risk profile, you know, very comfortable lens that we can make in that market. We do feel it gives us the opportunity to take advantage as opportunities arise. And we think it's a real point of, of differentiation versus a lot of our, our domestic peers in the Australian market.
Tell me, is there a premium for an Australian investor lending to an Asian client? It's less of a premium. It's more the market that we're looking to focus on. So there's a lot more opportunities in, for example, in a slightly higher returning space than we get in in Australia. So for example, we look at a senior secured asset in Australia might pay bills plus say 5%. That segment is fairly well covered by the Asian banks today. If you move slightly down the, the risk structure, we think in that really bills plus 7 to 8% or slightly higher type return bucket that we see a large number of opportunities in Asia in the corporate space with less competition. So we find in the Australian market, generally that type of return profile is largely property deals where it's corporate deals, there's quite a bit of competition. So it actually leads to tighter terms here, tighter pricing. So we think that that market is is less competitive and really wide open for us to take advantage of. So looking at the Asian market generally, how are those economies traveling and how confident are you lending into those spaces? to cover off the markets that we're really focused on is lending to borrowers in, in Singapore, Hong Kong, Korea, Japan, Taiwan. We have seen an overall boost in those markets really from the reopening of, of China. And so China demand does drive a lot of those, especially that those North Asian markets. Singapore generally has, we have seen a, a fairly strong economic growth across Southeast Asia. So I think we feel actually that market is, is sort of ahead of the cycle in growth. We feel there's, there's economic opportunities ahead Clearly, it does face the headwinds of the higher rate cycle, but we think the higher growth rate does help to mitigate that. Okay, so everyone likes to talk about calm seas and things that go right, changing tack fairly dramatically here. What happens when you see trouble times with a borrower and how do you respond to that? How do you get out of that position? Sure. And I think just having come out of the the COVID pandemic, I think that was clearly a a very volatile or challenging market for us in a period where there obviously were issues that crept up, which no one had really anticipated. So I think the way to mitigate those risks, and it's important for the listeners to appreciate that every portfolio, I'm sure you've seen that, whether it's equity, whether it's credit, there always are going to be hiccups. And I think it's important to be with, with a team that, A, when you're investing into the loan markets, you've had the experience of previous cycles. So we've been looking at the market, for example, at TCP through um, through the Asian crisis onwards. So we've really been able to see which segments perform well, which don't. Um, for example, you can have mining services, which are one derivative from the mining sector and from commodity price volatility. But clearly, that sector is almost more suited to an equity investment because it, it does have a lot of cyclicality. The first point is choosing sectors that you're going to go into, which are defensive, choosing borrowers, which are leaders in their markets, and really better on lending to, I should, should probably is a more proper way to say it, investment management teams, which you feel can really manage through issues. Specific to the product itself, again, remember that we're behind equity. So any initial reductions in, in evaluation, for example, if you start off with 100 million EV in a, in a company, if it's 50 million equity, 50 million in a loan format, that first 50 million of any valuation reduction hits the equity first. So first and foremost, within the capital structure were really buffered from um, many issues. The other areas we look at, we generally take security. So, you know, similar to a property deal, if we're looking at a, a lend to a business with a plant, we take those that hard assets, we take all the assets in terms of receivables and that sort of sit on the balance sheet. So we do have that, that buffer of assets below us. The other important point is, and we haven't really talked about structure, what's unique about the middle market space where we like play 
is we typically do get set of financial covenants in our structures. And what that means is that when a borrower enters into the loan, we'll have agreed on a quarterly basis, a set of tests that they have to meet. And if they don't meet those tests, there's sort of a default trigger. And again, to give comfort that we do put a buffer in, in terms of above you know, where we expect the company to perform. But for example, we'll, we'll set covenants often a, using a debt to EBITDA test or an EBITDA to interest test. So we can control if there's underperformance in a credit and, and leverage is stepping up or interest rates go up and we see a deterioration in the cash flow to that interest payment due. It's effectively a, a trigger, which means that the borrower or the company will come to us and say, listen, we, we're expecting to be to have some issues around our leverage in the business and in the next quarter or the quarter afterwards, or we're expecting to see tightening of interest coverage. And that gives us the ability to sit down early with our borrowers to discuss how they're going to restructure or amend or retool the business so that they can get back in line with the performance, which is different than in the larger segment of private credit. Again, there's, there's different areas of private credit where in terms of it's often more of a covenant lifestyle deal, which means that generally as a lender to that, that company, we don't really have much leverage to enact any change or resolution for any problems until they can service the debt. So again, playing in this middle market space, it does give us a, a fair number of protections. Again, day one, we we choose which companies we want to lend to, which sectors we want to be in, again, based on experience and performance of that company. Then we have security backing us in terms of if something does go wrong, we can take that asset as a, of a way to poop any potential loss. Plus, we structure in um, financial covenants where possible so that we have a lever to pull so that the borrower will come to us early to say if there's any potential issues um, sort of on the horizon. Thanks, Pete. So just in summary, GSFM is delighted to be partnering with you and the team at Tanara in offering this product to our retail client base, primarily because this is a, an asset class that can benefit in a rising interest rate environment. It also takes a lot of the market beta out of the returns. So the net asset value, for the most part, is going to be stable. The team is one of the most experienced lending teams operating in the market and certainly the founders are well known to us here at GSFM and also the existing team as it stands today are well known to our former colleagues at Grant Samuel. So with all that, we were very confident about bringing this product to market and we really look forward to sharing in its success with you. So thank you very much for your time today, Peter. I'm sure the listeners will have enjoyed our conversation and we look forward to involving you again. Great. Thanks very much, Damien.